Word nerd. Wordsmith. Wordy. Wordless. Oxford Dictionary says a word is a single, distinct, meaningful element of speech or writing, used with others or sometimes alone. We say each one matters. No extra words is literature, minimalist style. And we're getting you right to the story. One Moment by Amanda Staples It's always the way, isn't it? You never notice the number of yellow cars until you buy one, thinking you are unique then finding it's common. You never notice happy couples all cozy and cuddling until you are single. You never notice the numerous babies in every shop, on every street, on every TV advert, everywhere, until you can't have one. I used to play a yellow car with my brother. He was easily carsick, and Mum would distract us with games such as I Spy and Yellow Car and making words from letters on number plates. There are far more yellow cars these days than there were back then. They're ten a penny now. I don't know if you've played it, but when you spot a yellow car, you punch the person you're playing with. Or at least that's what happened with us. He would bruise me with his punches, Derek. On purpose. I tried to give as good as I got, but he always managed to punch harder until I couldn't take it and despite my best efforts, cried. Then Mum would reach back and smack us both on the legs as hard as she could manage from her twisted, constricted position. Then she turned back and moaned to my father, usually saying she wished she'd never bothered to have kids or had at least stopped at one. That would have been Derek. So I wouldn't have been born. I don't think she meant us to overhear her, believing her words drowned out by our squabbling in the radio. But I grew up believing she never wanted me. I wish I'd been brave enough to ask if that were true, but I was afraid of the answer. I never expected to be one of those women who become desperate for a baby. My mother was hardly a maternal example. I had no inkling at all. Then, wham. One day, I caught myself watching a nursery on a day trip to the park. All the little children like ducklings following a duck. Their high-vis tabards swamping them and reaching their knees, hanging wonkily off their shoulders. It was autumn. They were collecting twigs and leaves and conkers. No doubt for some craft activity. Shortly after that, I found out I couldn't have children, after undergoing various rigorous investigations. My husband would not entertain the idea of adoption, couldn't love another person's rejected child that would doubtless have issues. I was still trying to get my head around the idea of IVF when he left me. I haven't spoken to my mother about any of this. We don't talk about personal issues in our family. My brother never married, and died young of a heart attack. Well, actually, he was on a treadmill and had a heart attack, collapsed, fell off the treadmill, and hit his head. That's what killed him, apparently, the head injury. I don't know how they tell these things. I don't want to know. He was 35 years old. So I have no nieces or nephews to spoil, in place of a child of my own. My mother has never got over it. She'll never have grandchildren now. She looks at me as though all her hope died with him. Maybe it's true that she never wanted me, but she certainly wanted him, or at least she does now. I am single and childless. We were never close. I am a poor consolation prize. According to a counselor I saw briefly, grief will explain away unusual actions, uncharacteristic behavior. It doesn't make it right, but you can say you weren't in your right mind. 
Grief can make you mad, literally. Grief is a plausible excuse. I wasn't close with my brother, but his death was a dreadful shock. Events like that make you examine your own mortality. Not that I am old, I am three years younger than him. Though now he will cease to age, and I am thirty-seven. He died five years ago, and I recall his death every week, whereas my mother consistently lives it every day. I guess you never get over losing a child. It drove her and my father apart. I believe this is quite common. Both of us have been abandoned due to childlessness in one way or another. You'd think people would cling to each other at these moments, that, that they'd become each other's life rafts. Perhaps she wanted to drown and he wouldn't let her. Some people don't appreciate being saved, especially when they feel they don't have much to live for. So all of this has brought me to where I am today, sitting in a police station. Surprisingly, I find the police are very good with these issues, very understanding. Even though my brother's death isn't recent, the grief card can be played to effect. The WPC is very understanding, if a little condescending. Using the sort of voice I imagine she'd use with a lost or frightened child, we're in one of the interview rooms and she brings in hot sweet tea. I hate sugar in tea, but I drink it anyway because it's shocking to find myself here. It's so easily done. Taking a child, I mean. People really should be more careful. They sit with their phones, texting or chatting, or they get distracted with the dog they are trying to walk at the same time, or another child, or another mother. Just something. One moment. That's all it takes. One moment. It can change everything. Turn your world upside down, that moment. The gate on the play area in our park never shuts properly. The hinges are wrong. It bounces back open. No one is bothered. I was watching the child on the slide. He would climb the few steps on the ladder and slide down and do it again. His mother had tied their Weimar honor to the railings outside. Dogs aren't allowed in the children's play area. Didn't seem fair to me tying it up. Not much fun for the dog. But then maybe she doesn't have time to walk it separately. Another bouncy dog had come over, and her dog was clearly bothered by it and frustrated at being tied up. It got itself tangled and was making an awful noise. I was tempted to intervene, but feared being bitten. She hopped over the railing and began remonstrating with the other dog's owner and dealing with her own dog. And the boy just stopped sliding and walked out of the play area. I thought he would go to his mother, but he didn't. I watched him. I moved a little closer to him. Then he broke into a run and headed for the gates. It never occurred to me until then that they had sighted the play area perilously close to those gates to the road. His mother was still struggling with the dog. I should have alerted her, but I didn't. I ran after the boy as he reached the gates and scooped him up. And then it hit me again. Wham! A maternal instinct or something. I don't know. But a warmth, a yearning in my heart. I wanted to protect this child. I suddenly and desperately wanted a child to mother. That's why I understand why she did it. But to be arrested, how humiliating. Is this Mrs. Hyde? A voice I didn't recognize asked as I answered my ringing phone. Yes. I'm calling from Frampton Police Station. Oh? We have your mother. She's been arrested for attempting to abduct a child. What? So here I am, 
in interview room two with her and that nice WPC, and I don't know which of us is more shocked at her behavior, me or my mother. The WPC isn't shocked. This is not her first experience of this. We are waiting to see if the mother of the child will press charges. She's apparently calmed down, so the WPC says. He looked so much like Derek as a baby. My mother says this as though this relieves her of the crime, but it doesn't. I cannot condone her behavior. These are the only words she has uttered so far, her voice small and distant. She doesn't look at me. The child's mother has been told of my mother's grief, how she is struggling with the loss of her own child, albeit he was not a child. We are waiting to see if, as a mother herself, she can empathize. I think about how grateful the mother in the park was when I returned her child, how she cried and pulled him to her and he wriggled away, wanting to play, not understanding the upset he had caused. And I look at my mother and see she has not understood the upset she has caused. I cannot understand how, as a mother who has lost her child, she can cause that pain to another mother. But then I remember, grief makes us mad. In that moment, she wasn't thinking straight. In that moment, the other mother wasn't paying attention. She is still and silent and staring ahead, my mother. She appears dazed. She has not acknowledged me. I reach over and take her hand. Initially, there is no reaction from her. It's cold. Then, as though she is responding to the warmth of my hand, she curls her fingers around mine, and in that moment, I understand. Hello there, welcome to No Extra Words, the Flash Fiction Podcast. My name is Chris Baker Dersh, I'm your producer and editor. Anyone who listens to this show on a regular basis knows that I am a parent myself. It's interesting, this show has grown as my kid has grown, because when I started, I used to say I'm the parent of an infant, which was mostly true. When I launched my first episode, my son was 13 months old, and I now am the parent of a almost preschooler who will be three in just a couple of weeks but I am the parent of a young child and there are throughout this episode what I started thinking of as I was recording and putting it together this was almost my title profound moments of parenting it was a little bit too alliterative for me but that's what I kept thinking as I was recording this there are three different mother's voices in Amanda Staples' story. Amanda's making her first appearance in the show. It won't be her last. Welcome, Amanda. You're going to see her again over the next couple months. But there are really three mother's voices in the story. There's the mother who has lost the child, an adult child, but do they ever really grow up? There's the mother whose child was taken from her, who has to decide how mad she is at the mother who's lost a child. And then there's the mother who will never be, the woman with the maternal instincts who has discovered in her life she's never going to really be a mother, even though she has that in her heart and in her soul. And the question I'm left with at the end, I, I love stories that end with something like, I understand, because it's almost like a fill in the blank. I understand, and you as the reader get to decide what. 
And the question I'm left with at the end of that story is, whose grief is biggest? But that's what today is. It's those bittersweet moments of parenting. It's the realization that it doesn't always go how you planned it. And it goes too fast and too rough and too rocky and not in a straight line. And that was a little bit blue for me today as mom of an almost three-year-old to put this one together. But beautiful stories. Before we get to Clive Collins telling us the Frog Prince in his own lovely voice. I I love all my contributors so much, but I think when the, my British contributors read in their own voices, it gives me goosebumps. Before we get to that, we are celebrating the return of the dun da 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 Writing Spaces segment. We took a break last week so we could do You Be With The Producer, but as I said, you're going to get a lot more of these because I found myself unable to cut them, so you're going to hear them all. Today, you're going to hear from former No Extra Words contributors Pat Obermeyer and Joan McIntosh, and when they are finished, we're going to go back to profound moments of parenting and finish this off with Clive Collins reading The Frog Prince. So a lot is ahead, and I... We'll see you next week because we get a third episode in March. March is long and comes with a bonus. So I will see you next week here on No Extra Words. I'm a city gal. I like to look outside my window and see buildings. <laughs> Maybe a cab going by, a lot of people, and things happening outside my window. So I lived and worked in New York City for 18 years in the television industry in Manhattan and was had, you know, everything happening outside my window. New York's architecture changes. Um, you know, a building could be there and then the next the next week all of a sudden there's there's construction going up and your your cabbies going in a different street because something's blocked off. A lot of excitement a lot of stimulation in New York. And when I decided to leave the television industry to concentrate on my writing, I moved back to Buffalo, New York, my hometown, and I looked for a space that would have something similar to that feel. Well, of course, New York is New York, and you're sure as heck aren't going to get that anywhere else. But this comes kind of close. I have um, a loft in an old building and it's a building what well, is an old building but it's an old department store that was converted into loft space so i have terrific 12 foot ceilings wonderful wonderful natural light which is really important i don't have to turn my lights on you know hardly at all until the sun goes down i have that much light which is really terrific and it's one of the things that i i really wanted it's quiet it's very quiet and that's also also really good for me. I have my Aaron chair, which is something that I bought years ago. Oh my gosh, probably 15, 16 years ago when I was working on and writing screenplays. And it's got terrific lumbar support. So my Aaron chair is there. Um, the little lights I jerry-rigged from uh, that they're on a light stand. Um, they're just sort of hanging there haphazardly and uh it gives me like a little insular place to write at night so i have two different writing experiences almost i have my i'm just hunkered down here on my computer with a little bit of light um, coming off my my christmas lights 
and uh, my computer during the evening. And then during the day, I have this tremendous uh, natural light pouring in. And it's a, it's, it, it gives me kind of, you know, a, a differentiation between the day and the night and, and, it, and working and not working and, and whatever. So if I, I don't get to work during the day and then I just go into my little, my little space over there, it, it, it kind of delineates things for me, which I do like. Um, I'm writing a political satire column for politicalstorm.com right now. I was asked to write that column. I have a, a book out, political uh, satire. I'm working on another novel, and I'm doing some more flash fiction. So you can find my writing at politicalstorm.com, and you can also find me at my own website, patobermeyer.com. Send me an email. Let's connect. Let me know what you think of political satire. And uh, that's about it. I'm really enjoying my space. And it's a perfect place for me. Hi there, this is Joan McIntosh in St. John's, Newfoundland. My writing space is located in the corner of my living room. It's actually in the dining room area. It's kind of a cluttered space. There's a, a cluttered looking desk with a lot of stuff on it. There's a, a sofa that also has a lot of stuff on it. And then there's a coffee table that's um, covered with with all sorts of items. The nice part about it is you can, I can turn around and I can look out a very large window onto my backyard which is full of trees and lots of snow on the trees. I like to write in the morning so when I'm writing it's usually still dark because I get up fairly early in the morning. There's a, a light fixture, there's a number of doors, doorways that face onto my writing space. I can go and make myself some tea whenever I want to. I have a table nearby, there's another couch, there's also a fireplace which uh, is frequently on. It's a wood pellet uh, insert actually. So it's usually pretty warm and comfortable in here and this is where I do my writing. Anyway, that's about it for me. You can reach me on Facebook if you want to know anything more about my writing or me. Um, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Frog Prince by Clive Collins Helen Doyle told Tom about the frog when he Skyped her from Doha, but it was their daughter Lizzie who gave him the details. Well, like Mummy said, I was looking out of the sitting room window watching the rain, and then all of a sudden something big fell from out of the sky and landed in the garden. Well, I told Mummy, who didn't believe me naturally, but in the end she did, we went outside and there it was. The frog, Tom said. Yes, of course, the frog, 
really was it big little green orange with pink spots daddy well was it dead or alive lizzie measured out a length with her hands it was that big and we thought it was dead well mummy thought it was dead i thought it might just be stunned stunned he wondered at her use of the word but then he had wondered the summer before when he was at the house on one of his infrequent as helen described them visits and lizzie had calmly queried him as to whether or not the couple in bed together in the film they were all watching on the television were about to engage in sexual intercourse and i was right lizzie declared of course you were of course i was and you know what what Mummy said we should chuck it in the dustbin before the birds got at it, but I said it wasn't every day a frog fell from the sky, so we should put it somewhere safe where it could recover. And that's what you did. Exactly. That's what we, well, I did. I put it up close against the garden wall, where we hung the thing, the weather clock thing, two summers ago. You mean the sundial? Yes, that's it. Couldn't think of the name for a moment. Anyway, I put it there and covered it with some bark chippings. To keep it warm, Tom said. No, silly, to hide it from the birds. So what happened in the end? Well, it must have recovered, because when I went to look at it yesterday, it wasn't there. I searched the garden, but I couldn't find it. Probably went back to the palace then. What? Probably went back to the palace. You know, frogs, princes... If you kissed it better, it must have been a prince, and, well, you know the story. Daddy, I'm twelve years old, and if you aren't going to talk about this sensibly, then I'm just going to say good night. Later, after Lizzie had gone, and he and Helen were talking, she told him he had to accept that Lizzie was growing up. She's not the little girl you used to read stories to every night. She's, according to you, there's quite a list of things I have to accept. Yes, Tom. And the sooner you start to... Oh, I don't know. Look, I don't want another row, but... Always but. Yes, always but. Six months later, and Tom, back in England, was out in the garden tidying up. His neighbour put his head over the garden wall wanting to talk. I see you put the house up for sale then. Tom nodded. Helen and the wee girl? Lizzie's with Helen's parents. She'll be boarding at school in September. Helen's holidaying with some friends of hers. It's best we don't see each other for a while. The neighbour said he remembered how the three of them, Tom, Helen and Lizzie, had worked to remake the garden after they had bought the house, cutting back the ivy, stripping the two flower beds and replanting them so that Helen and Lizzie would have greenery to look at throughout the year. You laid down that porous membrane and covered it with bark chippings. I said the birds would play havoc with them, and they do. Left to himself, Tom returned a shovel of the chippings to one of the beds and saw Lizzie's frog. It lay half concealed by the sedum blue spruce he had put in for ground cover. So Lizzie had been right. The frog probably dropped by a bird that had snatched it from a pond or brook somewhere, was only stunned, not killed by its fall. It was dead now, though. 
lean, dry, leathery, and stretched out full length, as if death had taken it in mid-jump. It looked more like a dog-chew than a creature that had once lived and breathed and caught the sympathy of a girl too old for fairy tales. He carried it over to the dustbin, but then, remembering that was where Helen had said it should go in the first place, changed his mind. Instead, he took the creature back to where he had found it, moved aside some of the chippings and broke through the membrane with the edge of the shovel. Scraping out a shallow grave, he placed the frog in it so that its stomach might once again touch the dark, damp earth. Didn't they bury themselves in the earth to hibernate, frogs? Lizzie would, would have known had she been near enough for him to ask. Before he covered up the remains, he took off his gardening gloves, put the first two fingers of his right hand to his lips and laid them on the frog's head. It was what he used to do to Lizzie if she drifted off to sleep while he was reading to her. Good night, princess, he would say. Good night, sweet prince, he said now. Sometimes Lizzie would open her eyes, only having pretended to be asleep. The frog, however, did not move. Thanks for listening to the No Extra Words podcast. For more information on today's stories and contributors, or to learn how to submit your own work, please visit us at noextrawords.wordpress.com. The best support you can give the show is to recommend us to your family and friends. See you next time.